When somebody uh, takes your material and uses it right before you, so my starting joke has been compromised, but I guess that's okay. If you will turn your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 2, Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through 22 is a text that we're going to look at for a few minutes this morning. It's a strange text to me. It's one that I have avoided in times past. And so I spent some time, and I, I, I dove into it, and I got some help from some, some other people, and uh, I feel like I have an idea of what's going on here now in this text, and I want to share that with you and maybe share some application this morning. But before we get uh, into our immediate text, let me give you some important context about what's going on uh, both above and below this passage. So in Mark chapter 2, verse 14 through 17, we have... Uh, Jesus going to Matthew, the tax collector. And he calls him to be his disciple, and he goes to Matthew's home to eat with him. And this is strange that he's eating with a tax collector. But he's not just eating with one tax collector. He's eating with tax collectors and sinners, religious outcasts. And the Pharisees see this, and the scribes see this, and they're wondering, what's going on here? This man claims to be religious. He purports to be religious, Yet he is hanging out with the religious dregs of society. He is hanging out with the tax collectors and the sinners. This is odd. This doesn't fit the existing mold. This isn't what we would do. Why is he doing this? And they ask him, and Jesus tells them that he did not come for those who are well. Those who are well do not need a physician. Jesus tells them, I am here for purposes different than yours. Okay, on the other side of our text, if you drop down to verse 23, you're going to see two different stories. The first story is, is uh, it's on the Sabbath day, and the disciples are walking through a field, and they start to pick the heads of grain. And once again, the Pharisees are watching, and they see that Jesus is, uh, his disciples are doing this, and they wonder, what's going on here? They believe that this is a violation of the Sabbath. Really, it's a violation of their tradition. But they believe it's a violation of the Sabbath, and so they ask him, why do you allow your disciples to violate the Sabbath? And Jesus famously responds that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. Once again, though, Jesus is showing them he's different. He does not fit their mold. And then finally, in Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, we're on the Sabbath again. Jesus comes to a man with a withered hand, And he heals it. And the Pharisees are watching. They want to know, is he going to do this? Is he going to heal on the Sabbath? Because once again, they think that healing on the Sabbath is a violation of the law. Now, it's not. But that's their belief. That's that's their tradition, their mold. And Jesus is supposed to be a religious man, and he's not fitting into that mold. And he does it, and it bothers them, and he knows it bothers them. And so he asks them, he says, is it wrong to do good on the Sabbath? And instead of answering him, they keep silent, and then they begin to plot to destroy him. They say, look, this guy is too different. He is not like us. He is not one of us. He is doing things that we don't like and that we don't do. He does not fit our mold, and so we need to destroy him. And so the context for our passage, which is Mark chapter 2, uh, Mark chapter two verses 18 through 22, is religious confusion. If I could sum it up in two words, it's religious confusion. The Pharisees are confused. The scribes are confused. And in fairness, most of the people are are confused. 
But Jesus is making a point in all of these passages. His point is, I am different than the existing religious framework, and my disciples are going to be different than what you expect. Jesus does not fit the existing mold. He does not fit the existing religious mold. Okay, let's pick up in our text in Mark chapter 2, verse 18, beginning. It says, The disciples of John and of the Pharisees were fasting. And the people came and said to him, Why did the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Confusion again. They're confused. The Pharisees are confused. The disciples of John are confused. Now let me press pause here and tell you two quick things. I want to make two quick points about this question. First of all, I think that this is a fast rooted in tradition. We know that that Jesus is not in the business of breaking the law. He came to fulfill the law, not break the law. The only time that the Jews are asked to fast under the law is on the Day of Atonement. And so if this were the Day of Atonement, Jesus would be participating in that fast. This is more likely what we see in Luke chapter 2 and in verse 18, where the Pharisee is praying, and he says, I thank God I'm not like this man. And he says, I fast twice weekly. The Pharisees had a practice of fasting multiple times a week. And so this is likely what they're engaging in. And likewise, John the Baptist followers probably engaged in the same, the, the same kind of uh, self-denial and, and uh, uh, ascetic form of, of behavior that was characteristic of John the Baptist. They refused to indulge in worldly things. John the Baptist wore uh, camel skin, and he ate locusts and honey, and he lived in the wilderness. And so likely his disciples participated in this same form of self-denial, and they were participating in fast. And so these two groups of people are fasting, but Jesus' people are not. The second thing I want us to note real quickly about the question, uh, why do you not fast, is the difference in the gospel accounts. Mark's account that we just read, it makes it sound like the people are asking the question. In Matthew's account, we're told that it's the disciples of John who are, gonna, who are asking this question. And in Luke's account, it reads as if the Pharisees are the ones asking this question. And so I think the takeaway is this. Jesus is confusing everyone with what he's doing right now. The scribes and the Pharisees are confused that a man purporting to be religious does not follow and engage in their religious traditions. He's a Jew, and he's a religious Jew. He ought to be like us. He ought to be like us. The disciples of John the Baptist are confused because Jesus is not doing what his forerunner, John the Baptist, is doing. John the Baptist came to pave the way for you. Why aren't you like us? Jesus isn't like them either. And the people are are likewise confused because they're watching this take place and Jesus doesn't fit into any camp. He does not fit the existing religious mold. And so while the specific question that they ask is about fasting. Why don't your disciples fast? There's a deeper question that's being asked here. The deeper question is, Jesus, if you're religious, why aren't you like us? Why don't you participate in the existing religious traditions? Why don't you maintain them? Why don't you adhere to them? Why aren't you like us? Okay, with that in mind, let's return to the text. Beginning in verse 19, we're going to see Jesus' response. It says, and Jesus said to them, can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom will, take away, will be taken away from them, and they will fast in those days. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, 
or else the new piece passes, pulls away from the old, and the tear is made worse. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine bursts the wineskins, the wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins. This is a classic Jesus response. We get a question about fasting, and he starts talking about weddings and clothes and wine. And initially what he says is it's not appropriate for uh, people at a wedding to fast while the bridegroom is still with them. And this part of the, the answer, I think, makes some sense to us. It's certainly not what we would have wanted if we had asked the question. We want something more direct. But I think it makes sense to us. What Jesus is saying is, my disciples don't fast because you don't fast during a time of celebration. And the Jews would have appreciated uh, what's going on here. God in the Old Testament often illustrated his relationship with the Jews as one of a marriage relationship. God is the bridegroom and his bride is Israel. And so while God is with his people in the person of Jesus, it is not a time for fasting, but a time for celebration. He is with his people. He is with his bride. I think that makes some sense to us. And that's usually where I've stopped with this parable. And I just say, okay, that's good enough. And we'll keep going. Because the rest of his answer seems entirely off topic. They say, why don't you fast? Why don't your disciples fast, Jesus? And he says, well, don't you know you don't put a new patch on an old pair of clothes? Why don't you fast, Jesus? Why don't your disciples fast? He says, don't you know you don't put uh, new wine into old wineskins? I'm thinking, what? What kind of a response is this? This doesn't make any sense. It doesn't have anything to do with fasting, and it really doesn't have anything to do with the whole wedding thing you just brought up. This doesn't make sense to me, and it hadn't made sense to me until just recently. But when you take a moment and you think about what Jesus is saying here, especially in the larger context, it starts to make sense. Remember, the root of his question, the, the root of the question that's being asked is, why don't, you, uh, why don't you fit the existing religious mold? Why don't you maintain the existing religious traditions? Why aren't you like them? And what Jesus is saying when he says, you can't put a new patch on, all, uh, on old clothes and you can't put new wine into old wineskins is that his teachings are incompatible with the existing religious framework, okay? His point is he didn't simply come to patch up what exists. He didn't come to supplement what exists. He came to bring something entirely different. You cannot receive what Jesus is bringing and simply add it to the mix, okay? You cannot add Jesus to the traditions of the Pharisees nor can you add him to the teachings of John. And for that matter, you can't add him to the law of Moses. So Jesus tells them, look, my, initially, my disciples don't fast because now's not the time for fasting. But more importantly, my disciples don't fast because I am ushering in an entirely new system under a new covenant. Jeremiah chapter 31, and at verse 31, the prophet Jeremiah prophesies about this new covenant. In Jeremiah chapter 31, beginning in verse 31, it says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in that day. I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, 
says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their hearts and in their minds, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. What Jesus is bringing is a new covenant. It is not like the old. It comes on the basis of faith rather than heritage. It is a covenant that is written on the hearts of the people and it is placed within them. It is transformative on an individual level. Ezekiel chapter 11 and verse 19 and 20 describes a new creation that results from this covenant. It, it talks about uh, our, former, our former hearts of stone being cut out and replaced, and we are given new hearts and a new spirit. And so Jesus is saying, I am bringing something entirely different to the mix. But it's more than just in with the old and out with the new. There's more than that. Jesus isn't just saying that he's ushering in a new system. He is saying that mixing the old and the new together ruins the product. That needs to sink in for us if this is going to have meaning. Jesus is saying that to mix the traditions and the strictures of Judaism with the liberties of Christianity is to ruin it. And more simply, he is saying that if you mix the new with the old, you ruin what he has to offer us. He has something to offer us. He wants us to have it. It's better for us. But if you mix the new with the old, you're going to ruin it. Paul makes that exact same point in Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 21, where he withstands Peter to the face. We won't read it for the sake of time, but you all remember that. When, when Peter uh, is associating with the Gentile Christians, and then the Jewish Christians come, and he gets up and he leaves, and uh, he, he separates himself, he segregates himself from them, uh, because they're not Jewish Christians, and they're not circumcised, and they, you know, and he puts this barrier between them, and Paul says, no, 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 that's not the way this works, okay? If you're going to bind things like circumcision and dietary restrictions and, and segregate yourself, you are making the law of Christ of no effect. He goes so far as to say that it nullifies grace. If you add Judaism, if you add the law of Moses to Christ, you nullify grace, and he says you make Christ's death for nothing. It is of no effect. He died in vain. That's what Paul says when you start mixing things together. And so you cannot mix what Jesus has to offer with anything. Okay, well, that's all nice to know. I, th I think that is kind of what's going on in uh, these passages, and uh, that's nice to know. We know it now, but what's the point? I think... Stephen likes uh, a so what to every sermon. And so, so what? So what? Well, thank you for asking, Stephen. It is, it is true that we don't have this issue uh, of reverting back to, Christian, uh, uh, to, to Judaism. It is not constantly creeping into our lives. But like the Jewish converts of the first century, we all come to Christ with a background. We all come to Christ with a background, and so in that sense, we are all like the old cloth 
and the old wineskin. And so when we give our lives to Christ, we are to put to death the old, and we are to embrace the new. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now we know that process begins for us at baptism. In Romans chapter, one, or chapter 6 and in verse 1, beginning, it says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live in it any longer? Or do you not know that as many of us were baptized into Christ, were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death. Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life, new life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. We are to put to death the old. We are united with Christ in his death, and we are raised new. New. But we also know that because we still live in a fleshly body, we are subject to temptation. And so we daily crucify our old man. Paul talks about this in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 24. He says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Colossians chapter 3, verses 8 through 10 says something similar. It says, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. We are to put off the old and put on the new. But there's a problem. The problem is it's hard to let go of the old. And Jesus recognizes this problem in the account of this story in Luke chapter 5. In Luke chapter 5, he tells the exact same story. They say, why don't, you, why don't your disciples fast? And he says, you know, you don't fast while the bridegroom is, is at the wedding. Uh, and then he's, he says, you don't put new cloth on an old wine on, on an old garment, and you don't put new wine in an old wineskin. But then he says something else. In verse 39, he says, And no one, having drunk old wine, immediately desires new. For he says, the old is better. That is the sad reality of humanity, is that we, we are so comfortable doing what we have always done. We're so comfortable. The old is better. I, I see you have something new, 
and it looks good, but I'm comfortable. I'm comfortable where I am. And Jesus recognizes this. He says, not many people are going to want the new. They're going to look at it, and they're going to say, the old is better. I'd prefer to stick around and do what I've been doing. I fear that far too often when we stand at the crossroads and we are faced with embracing the new or maintaining the old, we choose the old. And ultimately, what we often end up doing is the exact same thing that Jesus is cautioning against in Mark chapter 2 or Luke chapter 5, in that we try to have our cake and eat it too. We try to keep the old and just mix in a little bit of the new. And that's leading me to my application this morning. I got two points of application for you. Point number one is this. Jesus does not come as a patch. Jesus does not come as a patch, and he does not work as a patch. You cannot just use him as a Band-Aid. So many of us just want a little bit of Jesus in our life. We want a dab here and a dash there. We want to stop the leaks. We just want to fix a problem or two that we have in our life. But we don't want full-scale change. And what Jesus is saying in this parable is that you cannot mix me. I do not work that way. You cannot take a little bit of Jesus and slap it on the old, put it on your former self, patch yourself up a little bit, and be okay, and mostly be what you were. That's not the way he works. You have to be changed completely by him. There are a lot of verses that we could go to that support this, but one that especially resonates with me now that I I appreciate more this parable is Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3, verses 15 through 16. He says, I know your works, that you are neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either hot or cold. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. How do you get warm water? You turn both sides of the tap on. You mix hot and cold. You mix. Jesus is saying, when you mix your old self with the new, you ruin the product and you disgust him. It's a visceral response. He wants to vomit us from his presence. It doesn't work that way. He doesn't work that way. What are some areas of our lives where we uh, just want to use Jesus as a patch? We want him to fix a couple things in our lives, but, but we don't want him to really touch this area or that area. I got three of them. How about our friends? How about our friends? Did your friend group change dramatically when you became a Christian? Or is it mostly the same as what it looked like when you obeyed the gospel? Let me talk to the younger folks for a second here. You're about to go off, and and some of you are going to go to college or to work, and your friends are going to have significant influence in your life. Now, most of y'all probably know that that Xavier and I are pretty close. We're pretty good friends. I'd I'd wager he probably thinks that we're best friends. (laughs) But it wasn't... It wasn't always like that for me. And let me tell you, that's a great thing for me. I will do everything with him. And it is such a good thing for me, but it wasn't always like that for me. In fact, I was the kind of person who resisted the notion of, of spending time with people from church. They were, they were a little bit weird, and, and so I just didn't want to do that. And I made bad decisions because I had bad influences. 
because I was treating Jesus like a patch in a different part of my life. I wanted to patch some stuff up, but I didn't want him to make a change there. I just mixed him in a little bit. Maybe I had a friend or two, an acquaintance from church. That was better, right? Mixing him in. Jesus says, I don't work that way. What about our entertainment? Does our entertainment look wildly different from before we were Christians to now? Or did we just mix a little Jesus in? It doesn't work that way. What about our free time? How do we spend our time now that we're Christians? Does it look the same as it did before? Is Jesus just kind of a a weekend thing, maybe just a Sunday thing? He's just a patch on Sundays that we've incorporated into our otherwise existing template. Jesus says, I don't work that way. You ruin the product when you mix me with the old. Okay, takeaway point number two is on the other side of patches, a lot of times what we like to do is we like to do, we're mostly all in on Jesus. And the point remains the same, is that if you, uh, Jesus is equally ineffective if you take all, uh, most but not all of him. I don't have time this morning to, to go into some of these passages, but Luke chapter 9, verses 57 through 62, describes uh, what discipleship to Jesus looks like. And it's an all-in kind of a thing. You cannot put your hand to the plow and look backwards. If you do that, you're not fit for the kingdom. That's what Jesus says. You can't be like Lot's wife. You can't head towards safety, but yearn for the debauchery of Sodom and Gomorrah. You can't serve two masters. That's Matthew chapter 6, verses 24 through 26. It doesn't work. You cannot serve two masters. Turn with me, if you will, to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. Beginning in verse 18, it's a, it's a well-known story about a man who was mostly all in. It says, now a certain ruler asked him, saying, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all these things I have kept from my youth, So when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, you still lack one thing, one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard this, he became very sorrowful for he was very rich. The rich young ruler was mostly where he needed to be. He was 99% of the way there. In fact, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but It sounds like he was probably doing a lot better than most of us. He was mostly all in. And he went away sorrowful, and Jesus says how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom. He was mostly there, but he wasn't all in. What are some areas of our lives where we're mostly all in on Jesus' teachings? I like a lot of what he has to say, and so I'm going to incorporate a whole lot, but maybe not all of it. Let me give you two. How about our marriages? We say, you know what? He's got a whole lot of good stuff to say about marriage. I like a lot of it. uh, But the whole submissive submission thing is is kind of antiquated. I'm I'm not uh, fully in on that. Or maybe, uh, guys, I'm not really into this whole uh, self-sacrificial love. Uh, I, I still need to be number one. 
I'm going to do most of it, just not all of it. Let me ask you, have you ever seen a marriage that looks really good on the outside? It looks great. It, it, it looks like it's founded on Christ, and all of a sudden, out of the blue, it's gone. And it's fractured, and it fails. I don't know what happens every time in those situations, but let me suggest to you that maybe, just maybe, they were mostly all in on what God had to say about marriage. Maybe they were 95% in on what God had to say. And what Jesus is saying in this parable is you cannot mix the two. You got to take all of me if you want this to work. What about parenting? What about parenting with our kids? I'm uh, the model parent. Uh, My daughter is taken out uh, multiple times every Sunday. Um, Do we do, do we buy in to what Jesus has to say about parenting? Are we mostly in, but not totally? Jesus is is counseling against that, that, that mind frame. He's saying that's not the way I work. Okay, well, let me wrap up in conclusion. Uh, Jesus' point is you cannot add me and my teachings to the Pharisees and their traditions. You can't add me to John the Baptist and what he, uh, his teachings. You can't add me to the law of Moses. And for us, you cannot add me to your, formal, your former self. You cannot add me to the old man. You have to do away with the old and embrace the new. That's the only way it's going to work. Let me leave you with a quote this morning. It's a quote from C.S. Lewis. I think it's powerful. He says, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. Doesn't matter. If it's false, doesn't matter. None of it matters. And if true, of infinite importance. If it's true, there's nothing else that matters. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. You get that? Christianity, if false, is of no importance, and if true, is of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. So my question for you this morning before we uh, head to our classes is, how important is, is Christ to you? He cannot be moderately important. You cannot mix him in. You gotta take him, and you gotta take all of them. At this time, we'll be dismissed to our classes. Thank you so much.